Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Ham and Egg News series, posted May 21st, 2020, titled Make a Monkey Out of Ken, featuring Gutsuk Gibbon. Welcome to Apologia, and another edition of Ham and Egg News, where we react to Ken Ham reacting to things. Here we are with this brand new exhibit, and it's to honor Lucy. Wait. Lucy's not Is a that person. Erica? Lucy. That's a given? Was an ape. At the Creation Museum? Well, the evolutionists think busted. she was close to a person. Well, related to What people. a fascinating well, exhibit. Here we are. We're unveiling it right here. now. I feel quite lucky to have been able to sneak into their midst. This is something that they teach you when you're getting a uh, master's of research in, in primatology. They teach you how to blend in with the great apes. Sure, great apes maybe. But you were in a room with people. Hmm, and what perhaps does that imply? That's the brand new Creation Museum exhibit describing the human kind and the ape kind. Perhaps we find that a bit redundant, don't we? Given that creationists have tried and failed over and over and over and over again to find a reason to separate humans from the rest of the great apes. And this is just a shining beacon, a monument to that effort. And as we'll see, it certainly does fail with the best of them. Well, I was just about to watch Ken Ham give us his insights on gorillas. You're a primatology specialist. You up for that? Oh, by all means, I'm ready for the carnage. Okay, right. are we ready? Right. Ready Let's for this? You ready it. for the first one? Robot spy gorilla records wild gorillas singing and farting because nature is beautiful. Okay, can I just say one thing before we go on? <laughs> yeah. If any Australians are watching this, I know she used a swear word, so okay. I can't believe that. Dr. Purdom just swore for all the Australians watching this. Let's just add that to the list of things old Ken Ham is having to adapt for his Australian audience. Everything in Australia wants to kill you. <laughs> Everything in Australia wants to kill you, including your uh, vernacular. They basically make these robotic animals that look super realistic, and they put them in areas then where they can have interactions basically with a certain animal population so they can record things better that they couldn't record if there was a human basically standing there recording it. They needed to attend your class, obviously. Exactly, yes. Had they attended your sneaking up on the great ape class, they would have been able to blend in seamlessly with all of our primate relatives of the hominoid distinction. So they actually were able to capture on camera, okay, are you ready for this? Gorillas that were singing while they were eating, humming and singing. I can't sing while I eat, so that's pretty talented right there. You might say that that's something of a, of a genetic entropy, wouldn't you? <laughs> we got the video to play for you, and we will make some comments as we go through. Just watching a video and making comments as you go? <laughs> That'll never catch on. But it'll blow your mind. I mean... I mean, Blow they, your mind? Yeah, they were tooting all right. Well, they were blowing. <laughs> we really got some top-tier comedians going on on Answers News here today, don't we? <laughs> I don't know if you and I are any better, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's that's absolutely true. You know, when, when I was listening to this, I was thinking of Mozart, Handel. Who are you thinking of? Oh, yeah. Taylor Swift? Yeah. Oh, well, no, that's, that's not my vein, but... Oh. Um, 
You might who, insult who some people by saying <laughs> Okay, that. haters gonna hate. Haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Here, it Here is. we go. go. The gorillas singing. From chimpanzee to chimpanzee. I hate every chimp I see. All right. Other spies are recording something truly groundbreaking. They've caught our gorillas singing wow. as they eat. So this singing, why are researchers interested? Why is this of note in your community? Well, the whole idea of primate vocalizations, they have immense implications on human speech patterns. We can look at any kind of non-human primate and look at how they speak and communicate with one another and draw comparisons to human speech patterns. And, and this goes for even very basal baboon-style animals like gelata baboons, which are actually not technically baboons, they're theropithecids. But looking at communication patterns, it really is an excellent means by which to kind of attempt to track the evolution of our own language. So an excellent example would be looking at those gelatas that I just mentioned, because they're kind of one of the dumber ground monkeys. And yet their speech patterns, which are very garbled, follow Menzerath's law, which is actually one of the most basal linguistic sort of foundational rules for communicating with one another. It's essentially saying, I'm going to get the most information to my kin or to my friend who I'm trying to communicate with, with the fewest amount of words. So the very fact that we find these non-human primates following these laws in, in such a basal manner speaks volumes about our own pathway. So seeing gorillas doing these hums and these sort of singing gestures, so to speak, it really does have a lot of bearing on where we are today, behaviorally more than anything else. But I'm sure we're going to touch more on the neurology as we move along. So let's say, just hypothetically, there was a human around that didn't think evolution was a thing. Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking. Are there independent reasons to be interested in gorilla vocalization? Or is it entirely in how this relates to humans? Yeah, absolutely. A great many vocalizations that occur amongst the great apes, humans included, they serve a communicatory purpose that isn't necessarily conveying a specific message, but rather a state of being. So for instance, you know, you see chimpanzees, they laugh when they're tickled, which is essentially a, a means of conveying, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm having a good time. I don't feel threatened by you. And very similarly, when these gorillas, I've, you know, this study is actually fascinating for this reason, but the primary vocalizers are the alpha males and sort of the black-backed males as well. And the reason they're doing this is essentially to say, the proposed reason is to say, I am content Allow us to continue eating, you know, without fear of predators or disturbance or whatever. And in the same study, they actually found that when the males ceased singing, this disturbance was almost this radiative message to everyone else in the troop. This is, all right, time to get up and move. So perhaps this is the root of why we hum and sing when we're content and we don't do so when we're pissed off, as basal as that sounds. Might this be the root of mansplaining? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Are they also, I mean, if you look at some of these gorillas, it seems like they're also doing a bit of man spreading, as it were, sitting with their legs out to the side. Science. We got it figured out. Science. We got it figured out. 
It's a chorus of appreciation. So they're, they're really anthropomorphizing, right? They're trying to take human traits and put them on gorillas. So anthropomorphization is something that they warn you about in pretty much any ecological study, because they're basically saying, look, don't pose human intentions on non-human animals because they don't necessarily operate in the same way. But in some of the courses that I've taken, I've had professors say to me, it's almost a bit strange to completely put anthropomorphization out to pasture, so to speak, with some of our great apes, because they are necessarily behaving in a way that is tied to us, or rather, we are behaving necessarily in a way that ties us to them. You notice Georgia here saying, ah, look at us, we're imposing, you know, human traits on these great apes, on these gorillas. But in reality, what we're looking at is a shared trait amongst both of us, perhaps something that we picked up from a common ancestor with them rather than something that's been derived in both of us. So it's a loaded way of phrasing this by saying, ah, singing is exclusively human. Well, no, it's not. That <laughs> in fact, most traits that we have can be found in other organisms, of course, in a gradient, but very specifically in the great apes, the analogous behaviors are um, pretty dead on as, as humans. So while we need to be aware of our anthropomorphization of other animals, with the primates, you almost have to say, yes, I am aware of it, but it's also something that we need to keep in mind moving forward when we're drawing these comparisons, if that makes any sense. They can't speak. They have no words. They sounded like they were growling to me. Well, they sounded like a Wookiee to me, but... <laughs> a Wookiee? Finally, something I'm going to know more about than Erica. I had the distinct pleasure of getting to know Ben Burt, the man who designed Chewbacca's vocalizations in my years at Skywalker Ranch. So in the sort of year I spent recording preliminary sounds for Star Wars, I collected lots of bear sounds, as well as walruses and lions and badgers and sick animals and you know, domestic and all sorts of things. And out of all these recordings, you could extract little bits of sound, little grunts and moans and uggs and args and purring sounds, whatever it might be. And I made, I collected and put all in one tape, essentially, all these sounds which I thought had emotional feelings associated with them. You play this sound, it sounded affectionate. You played this other sound, it sounded angry. And uh, in that manner, I kind of had these categories of little sounds that each had an emotional tone associated with it. So essentially, what Bodhi associates as a Wookiee are animal noises specifically selected for personification and emotion, which is the very point the AIG crew were criticizing, but also the point of the study. Even in these basal forms of communication, our shared instincts and communication centers let us make emotional connection from the same sounds, whether they're from Chewbacca or from gorillas in the jungle. Exactly, yes. But the question is, why are they even thinking that such a basal form of communication, quote unquote, would sound anything like Beethoven's symphony? Human speech patterns are incredibly derived when compared to gorillas, and gorillas don't write symphonies because they don't need to write symphonies out in the jungle. They need to communicate with one another in a way that is efficient, and that they can understand. There's a lot of animals, you know, like birds, for example, that, mm -hmm. that do what we call singing sounds and things like that, the way that they communicate. So it's not a big deal to see this right. in nature, but... The difference between birds singing and equating that to finding out that other primates sing or hum rather in a, in a rather, you know, quote-unquote human-like fashion is enormous. You, you cannot 
equate the two. The fact of the matter is we don't find birds out there singing while they're doing contented work like these gorillas do, like humans do. And more importantly, when you look at the neurology, when you look at the brain of a gorilla, maybe a macaw and a human, the comparison between the human and the gorilla is so ridiculously similar that to even say just because birds sing, gorilla singing isn't a big deal is would you get laughed out of any, you know, ecology convention you go to. That'd be like saying it's no big deal that a duck swims because fish also swim. It precisely. Yes. It's completely different animal, pun intended. <laughs> you can draw whatever conclusion you want from it, but it's definitely not singing. You can draw whatever conclusion you want from it, but it's not the only reasonable conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> This is just classic Georgia. I mean, I don't know why it's so difficult for these guys to understand that the evolution of any given trait or behavior occurs slowly and gradually. Of course, I guess since they abide by a a model of hyper-evolution in a whatever 44,000-year period, that that seems quite foreign to them. 4,400. Don't be making it longer than it is. I'm sorry. You're right. 4,400. It boils down to behavior and morphology. So speech depends on pathways in the brain, the morphology of the lips, teeth, and tongue, and behaviors, right? Because no non-social animal in the wild has complicated communicatory behaviors because they don't need them. If an animal lives in a solitary fashion, there's no pressure to develop good social skills. So so language and communication is going to be kind of put on the back burner in favor of that. The fact that these guys have, I think it's 300 to 400 square centimeter brain case, and they're humming and communicating in in a fashion that is essentially equatable to a one to two-year-old child is astonishing. They've got a third of the brain size of us, and yet they're on par with our young in a very highly important developmental stage. That's astonishing. That's so, so much more than we could ever ask for from an evolutionary point of view. Also, because they believe in evolution, they're always trying to look for something that they can say is a human Mm -hmm. trait. That's what they're always trying to do. They are so stuck on this idea of imposing human traits on other animals instead of appreciating that, by and large, it's mostly vice versa. It's mostly the things that we do are simply a, a specialized or even, you know, rather basal version of what other animals do regularly. Take creationist Carlos Linnaeus, right? I mean, this is a guy whose bread and butter was sort of biblical ecology back when, and he's the father of taxonomy. There's an excellent quote out there that really kind of encompasses the desperation that he's got here. He's looking at these skeletons and he's like, I can't think of a single reason why we should separate humans from the other apes. As hard as I've looked, there's just not one to be found. And as much as the theologians are desperate for me to impose one, it can't be done. All right, our next article, Origins of Human Language Pathway in the Brain, at least 25 million years old. Because brains, you know, they're soft tissue, so they don't fossilize. Uh, So they can't study brains from the fossil record. So all they can do is study what we have today, right? We might not be able to study the exact inner mechanisms of each and every brain, but what we do have is the skulls. And what you can get from a skull is an endocast. An endocast is essentially the general shape of the brain by looking at the ventral surface of the skull of whatever given animal you're looking at. And oddly enough, it can tell you way more about which areas are larger and more pronounced in given primate than you would think. So to say that we know nothing about brains from fossils is uh, it's a little uninformed. It's kind of their brand. <laughs> True. So they took living primates uh, and living humans and they did some t- CT scans. Could you get a ape in a CT scan? <laughs> <laughs> Pair 
carefully. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is looking at current um, primates, living primates and living humans, examining their brains and inferring backwards. And they make that clear in the article. I was, I was impressed to see that they actually say the neuroscientists need to infer what the brains of the common ancestors may have been. I imagine he was surprised to see a bit of scientific honesty in a peer-reviewed journal. That's not something these guys are exactly used to. And do you not find it a bit redundant to say uh, comparing primates to humans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I like to compare dogs and mammals and see how they fare. <laughs> yeah, I like to compare uh, cats and felids too. Mm. Also, just a big surprise to me, I just noticed they're actually talking about the peer-reviewed study and not some popular version of it. That is refreshing. It is refreshing. And you know, if this holds out, we'll make it through the entire interview without hearing the name Jeffrey Tompkins or Nathaniel Jensen. <laughs> That's asking a lot. It is. <laughs> now, evolutionists will often say, well, you Christians just know what you believe, and then you go looking for the evidence. Well, it sure seems like that's what they're doing here. They already <laughs> believe there's a common ancestor, and so they're trying to find the evidence for that common ancestor. Have you noticed that there's a trend with these guys where they like to take a single field and analyze that field in isolation? So here we're looking at, you know, neurology and perhaps a bit of genetics. And then this guy sits here and he's like, yeah, they're inferring that there's a common ancestor when we already have dozens upon dozens of fossils of common ancestors that these guys will readily say are a common ancestor for all of the apes, but then they have a problem with lumping the humans in. So it's this weird dichotomy where they're trying to separate the fields out in order to keep them from meshing with one another and appearing parsimonious. This could just as easily be explained, and this is covered in uh, Replacing Darwin as well, by a common designer. How easy you can explain something isn't the sole indicator of how true it is. No, it certainly is not. And this classic sort of ad hoc attempt to explain nested hierarchies with common design that old Nathaniel Jensen's really been pushing in Replacing Darwin is completely null and void when we consider the sheer amount of redundancy that we find in genetics and in morphology. These guys want to pretend that what you hear classically is, ah, well, humans and chimps, they live similar lifestyles. No, not even close. Show me a chimp that hunts on the savanna with persistence methods, and then maybe we can talk. But we're talking about an arboreal quadruped that sometimes spends time on the ground versus a bipedal animal that lives by throwing sharp sticks at other animals. Common design falls flat not just in its application, but in pretty much any other way you could measure it. What I heard is I'm allowed to throw sharp sticks. <laughs> Put on safety goggles. Okay. Apes like chimps and gorillas, they do have some type of communication structures and things, and they can make those vocalizations and, and understand each other in those ways. We'd expect for that auditory cortex and that frontal lobe region that, that uh, controls those things in the brain to be connected. But now they're saying this is actually 20 million years older because that common ancestor between chimps and, and humans would have been about five or six million years ago. This is 20 million years older. So they're going to go back and look for the earlier examples of that. So here's a cool connection that we can make. This is a slick evolutionary prediction that we can use. So like we said earlier, we know that old world monkeys like uh, geladas and baboons and macaques, that they, even the dumbest of the old world monkeys, can follow a basic linguistic law of efficiency, essentially. So what we could say, knowing just that, and given this is a recent study, we can look at that and say, well, when did old world monkeys diverge from the new world monkeys? And we can trace that back and say, that's when we should expect to see 
these linguistic pathways getting more and more complicated because in extant animals, that's where we see them pop up. New World monkeys, to my knowledge, don't follow any of these specific rules. And wouldn't you know it, we find one of the first more derived of the Old World monkey slash great ape, depending on who you talk to, being proconsul about 20 million years ago. That's where it's dated at. So it seems a bit coincidental that we've got, what is that, three separate fields all agreeing that this linguistic pathway should pop up approximately 20, 25, 30 million years ago. And that's kind of what we found, isn't it? I love predictive power. It's my favorite thing. Very cool stuff. And they had to acknowledge the fact that humans are the only ones that do communicate through. Yeah. So they're looking language, for these so. fossils, mm-hmm. they call them in, mm-hmm. in quotes. Humans are the only species that communicate through language. <laughs> also, did you like how you put fossils in, in quotation marks? <laughs> you know, fossils, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I mean, it all depends on definitions, right? How do we define language? The fact that Campbell's monkeys had, can combine calls, one kind of call with another kind of call, to mean completely different things. You know, they've got a call for leopard, and then they've got a call for being close and for being far away. So they can say leopard close or leopard far away and communicate a completely different message to the other monkeys. Is that language? Well, it depends on how you define it. They have calls that mean different things that can be strung together in a sort of primitive sentence. I mean, I would call that somewhat linguistic. We've got whales and dolphins doing some kind of sophisticated communication. We got Coco the gorilla who understood our language. Oh man, Coco is a fascinating case. She could do 1,000 unique signs, understand 2,000 English words, and it was a bit dicey. Some people were saying, yeah, well, Coco, she tries several different signs and looks for cues from her keepers, and that's why she was able to answer very specific questions and you know perform complex tasks. But then they did a really interesting study with Kanzi, the male bonobo who worked with lexagrams. So it's basically this big TV screen that has all these little images and the images, you know, represent certain things. So you might have an X and that means dog. And Kanzi is capable of stringing together hundreds of different unique sentences and words and requests, this, that, and the other thing with his keepers going back and forth and coming up with unique and novel ways of asking for certain things. The classic one is uh, with Coco, rather, was for Swan, she signed Water Bird. And Kanzi does something very similar with this lexagram. And the interesting thing is, is they did this fascinating experiment where his keeper put on a a welding mask so he could get no cues from her face whatsoever. And she asked him to put the pine needles in the refrigerator. And Kanzi picked up the pine needles and he walked over to the toy fridge and put them in the refrigerator and closed the door. You know, so it's very clear that these guys are understanding what we're saying. And the fact that Kanzi was capable of getting that with no additional cues has enormous bearing on all of the sort of anecdotal experiences that occurred with Coco and lends them a ton of credence. So you're right. We've got Coco, we've got Kanzi, we've got Washa, we've got Nim Chimpsky. You know, we've got all these different examples of teaching apes, you know, sign language, and they outperformed human infants up to a certain age. So this is ridiculous to even, and like you said, the cetaceans are another one. These guys particularly impose these weird random definitions in this kind of desperate grab to separate humans from everything else. And it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> and actually, in our new exhibit at the Creation Museum, the Starting Points exhibit, we have a comparison between ancient humans and uh, also the apes. In fact, uh, if you've been here in the last few months, you probably didn't see the piece about the apes, but I was just in there and Lucy's being installed this week. <laughs> All so right. when we oh, open back up, good. you'll get to see Lucy. And Wait, isn't that where we came in? 
With Ken Ham ready to unveil the new Lucy exhibit? I think we've got to take a trip. You're willing to go back? Yeah, sure. Ladies and gentlemen, we have for you today world-class, professional, first-class, outstanding, phenomenal, unique, powerful, absolutely stunning, spectacular new exhibit at the Creation Museum. I guess that's where the Microsoft Word synonym function ran out of words, huh? <laughs> uh, he uses Clippy. He uses Clippy. He uses Clippy. <laughs> It yeah. looks like you're trying to indoctrinate children. I, I want a videographer. Have a look at the skulls over here. These are all from the human kind, because there's only one kind of human. It's called human. Uh, but these are different variations within the human kind mm -hmm. based on real skulls. But have a look at those skulls. And you know what, Ben, as you look at them, they look human. Yes. And then let's come across here as we scan around from those and look at these skulls over here, and they look ape. Can you imagine defining any kind of taxonomic group, just alone by how it looks. You'll notice when you look at some of these guys here, and, and he's going to show it in a second when we move around to the right and look at the young, the juvenile chimpanzee and the Dikika child, I think they have that over there as well. But they look really, really human. I find it really funny that that's the criteria that they're using here. Ah, they look like this. Ah, they look like that. If you took a marsupial vole and a placental vole and you looked at their skeletons, you would say they were of the same kind. But one's a monotreme, you know, and the other one is a classic placental mammal. So this is just a bad way of <laughs> categorizing things. I did an extensive video on the original Creation Museum Lucy exhibit as it appeared in the Genesis Paradise Lost movie. Yes. And they're pulling the same dishonest tactic here. Specifically, displaying the skulls of the various ape species without the rest of the body. If we imagine a perfect gradient of all the possible iterations of skulls between the most modern ape-like and most modern human-like, at some point one of those skulls will be a 51-49 split, right? Absolutely. So, by showing merely skulls, obviously every skull in the gradient will fall 51% or more human, or 51% and more ape. And as is in Genesis, can make the arbitrary distinction we see in this exhibit. The problem is that that gradient is also true of the pelvis, the hands, the feet, the arms. Every bone has a gradient. And sometimes we find the 75% human pelvis in the same specimen of the 49% human skull, as evolution would predict, since the process is slow, unguided, and non-uniform. But if AIG were to display the entire skeletons, their narrative would be blown out of the water. But by sticking to skulls, they can lie by omission. Yeah, not only that, but one of the biggest brawls in anthropology that pretty much ever happened was the argument of bipedality or big brain first. Which happened? Did you have smart apes in the trees or did you have dumb apes walking on two legs? And Lucy was one of the key factors in the deciding that it was indeed bipedality first because you're dead right. And you'll notice the skeletal replica behind her there. They're using the pelvis prior to its reconstruction. And the reason that they're doing that is because when they found, and this is a classic creationist gripe, when they found Lucy's pelvis, it had been crushed because Lucy died because she fell out of a tree, probably because she wasn't as arboreally adapted as her ancestors were. And yet, because behavior tends to come after morphology. And so essentially, if we had an organism whose morphology changed to be more terrestrial, but she still had the behavior of hanging out in trees, at least some. And with that's, you know, we found her in a paleo environment that was like dry woodland. So they would have been spending some time in the trees hanging out, maybe nesting there. But she died because she fell out of a tree. And creationists will say, ah, 
they reconstructed the pelvis. They're not using it as it was found. And the reason is because the way that it was found is anatomically impossible for any organism to have. It's not that it was anatomically impossible for a biped. It was anatomically impossible for a quadruped as well, which is why it was reconstructed. Then when they reconstructed it, it became abundantly clear that it had the pelvis bowl shape that was way more similar to a modern human. That bowl shape is necessary for the pelvic floor to hold all the organs in. And so essentially, that's how we know she's a biped from the hips, from the femur, the fact that there's this huge femoral head. It's completely disingenuous, and I would even say blatantly dishonest, to depict Lucy as a quadruped when we know for a fact that she couldn't have walked efficiently on all four legs if she tried because her bones didn't fit that way. So you you make a great point about the skulls, and you make an excellent point about not including the postcrania, because you're dead right. If you showed this in, individual to the far left here, this is, I believe it's parent, I can't see the second name, it's either Robustus or Boisei, but one of the Paranthropines, these guys were definitive bipeds. Like there is no doubt in anyone's mind that the Paranthropines walked on two feet. And the reason they don't show them is because it's a lot easier to imagine a transitional form or at least a very distant cousin, which is what we think the Paranthropines were, if they walked on two feet like us, which is why they tried to push this so hard that Lucy walked on her knuckles. She didn't even have the proper kind of weight bearing for the radius online humorous to walk on her knuckles. It's, it's ridiculous. I could go on and on about that. You right. can easily tell the difference between an ape skull and a human skull. I mean, mm-hmm. really, it is easy. Yeah, back to the theme. Whatever, whatever science is easiest is what we go with. Yeah, not only that, he says it's easy, but then gives no criteria. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't have any five-year-olds on hand to come and demonstrate. Yeah, yeah exactly. I guess they <laughs> They couldn't tote them out for this. That's a great point. What about these skulls on the other side here? They're very small. So we're showing over here the small skulls. Um, we have a modern-day chimpanzee, and we also have a early um, one of the the young. Uh, we're calling them aplings of what Lucy's kind would have would have been. So it shows kind of the morphology um, that is teaching here of the ape kinds and how similar they look. Um, as babies, but as they mature, you see a lot of diversity even within the ape kind. That is exactly the point. What he just said there is exactly the point. Notice that all of these guys right here have a vastly different skull shape than what we see in the adult, at least of chimpanzees. But if you look at, I believe the Tong child is the one to the far right, so that would be uh, Australopithecus afarensis, the same species as Lucy. I find it very interesting that they're not showing this skull next to the adult afarensis skull, because if they did, you would notice that there's far less difference between baby afarensis and adult afarensis than there is between baby chimp and adult chimp due to this idea of retained neoteny, which is essentially the hypothesis that one of the reasons why human skull shape is the way that it is, is because we kept the flatter features, the flatter face, less prognathism, et cetera, from our infancy longer than chimpanzees or bonobos do now. So it's it's very interesting to me. This is a very strategic way of organizing your ape kind exhibit. Uh, my wife, Kathy, and I met a holographic artist um, many years ago. And I, I was inspired by the fact that you could make it appear as if um, there was something inside the glass, something halfway outside the glass or all the way outside the glass. And it dawned on me as we were at that studio that we could put a hologram in front of an object and make it look like the hologram was inside of that object. This is super cool. Yeah, this is actually totally sick. I (laughs) I would love to see this in, you know, any kind of legitimate museum. (laughs) (laughs) 
they put all their energy into the creativity and none of it into the scientific rigor. Maybe we could get a little bit more on the uh, reading peer reviewed journal side, but this is really cool. I, you know, you got to give them credit where credit is due. But what have they done with the pelvis here? Is this reconstructed pelvis? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, you'll notice that the blades are very long, which is not what the reconstructed pelvis of Lucy looks like. Um, and this is done intentionally because when Lucy was found, you know, like I said earlier, the pelvis was crushed almost beyond recognition and completely within an anatomically impossible position for a quadruped or a biped. So they reconstructed it. And upon reconstruction, which is literally just like fitting pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together, albeit a lot more difficult, you you get a very bowl-shaped pelvis, which is very human-like. That's one of the reasons that we know that Lucy was a biped. But when you look at this, what you see is a flared pelvis, very similar to that of a chimpanzee. And you'll notice that the angle that we're looking at makes it very difficult to see what the femoral head looks like because the way that the femoral head fits into the socket of the reconstructed pelvis of Lucy makes it abundantly evident that she was a biped. And yet it's very difficult to get a good view of it here. You can't help but wonder if that was intentional as well. Basically, this is a disingenuous interpretation of the remains that we found of Lucy. But more importantly, it very much exemplifies the classic creationist trend of, well, Lucy's the only one. They forget that we have other specimens of afarensis. They forget that we have the Tong child or the Dakika child. One of those is Africanus, but they're they're very similar species. They forget about, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but the Katamendu man where we have better skulls and better femurs and just this excellent means of putting together what the species looked like. And instead they opt for, eh, you know, we'll just eyeball it. That's what the anthropologists do anyways. <laughs> the layout totally footprints over here, which we talk about and have a photograph of, mm-hmm. they're supposedly dated to 3.7 million years, which means they are supposedly, from an evolutionist perspective, older than Lucy. Mm-hmm. Lucy... Obviously, if you look at the hands and the feet, they're obviously apes, mm-hmm. uh, but the Laetoli footprints look human. Right. So then that was a problem for Lucy from an evolutionist perspective. The really cool thing about the Laetoli footprints is that they are very human-like. It would be a mistake to say that they are definitively human because there are some excellent tracks that you can find, like human, legitimately modern-ish human trackways. And they look almost nothing like the Laetoli footprints with how the big toe falls in line with the rest of the toes. And so essentially researchers were like, well, this is really weird. You know, they, they do look very human-like, but they're also somewhat distinct. Well, what did they come from? Of course, we date local afarensis fossils from the, the nearby area near Laetoli, like Olduvai Gorge and, and things like that, around to the same date as the Laetoli footprints. But creationists like to say, ah, look at them. They, they're human footprints. Obviously, they're human. They look like human. But the problem with that is, is a bunch of researchers thought the same thing. And so they were like, let's do a biomechanics study. And so they went and they had a bunch of hunter-gatherers make trackways in soft ash or silt or clay and things, things of this nature in the modern day. And then they did the same things with chimps. Like they, they straight up made chimps, you know, walk in, in this soft soil. They took casts and then they compared them to the cast Laetoli footprints to look at how the weight was born and how the arch of the foot holds the weight, things of that nature. And what they found out is that the Laetoli footprints, whatever made them, you know, quote unquote, is perfectly intermediate between how a chimpanzee bears its weight and how a modern human bears its weight. What that essentially means is that you have this very rigid midfoot and a kind of intermediate big toe, like how it falls in line and how the push-off works. And so Lucy was definitively a biped for 
partially because of this and partially because of the other afarensis fossils that we have, but she wouldn't have been very efficient on her two feet. She probably would walk decent distances on two legs, right? But as far as running and persistence hunting and things like that, she wouldn't have been graceful, let's put it that way. And at the back, we have a cast of the bones of Lucy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you can see that they didn't find the entire skeleton. You know, when they, when they, they would try to make Lucy more human-like. Mm. What they do is, first of all, there are not very many bones for the hands and feet. Uh, in fact, uh, there's no foot bones. So they always put human feet on Lucy. Now, what I had to learn, what bothers me here, is that Lucy is not synonymous with this species. Lucy is a single specimen of that species. Now, Erica, correct me if I'm wrong, we have plenty of other specimens now, right? Oh, plenty. Afarensis is very well represented. We have this sweet representation of a nearly complete female, a nearly complete male, and a nearly complete juvenile. So anytime you find a random bone in the dirt, if you're trying to see if it's afarensis, you can compare it to one of the three nearly completes that we have. And of the partials, oh my God, you fill a dump truck with all the partials we have of afarensis. You know, from toe bones to shoulders to pelvis, you know, pieces to, to teeth, oh, the teeth. So it's very, you're, you're dead right with that. You know, they, they like to pretend like Lucy's it, you know, not even close. And as you can see on the wall, yeah, where are the hands and feet? So obviously the scientists are just making up what they want the hands and the feet to look like. Exactly. Obviously. <laughs> the, the reality of it is that we have other specimens that have hands and feet. We have other specimens that are very well preserved and, and show with, with an incredible degree of specificity how this animal probably moved. And that's why we say Lucy's a biped, because we have representation of the key features that decide how an organism gets around, how it locomotes. You know, if you found a human pelvis in the dirt and you didn't know what a human was, there's no way you would say that it was quadrupedal. You know, so why are, we, why are these guys doing the same thing with Lucy and with afarensis in general? And they all look very similar, don't they? Yes. Again, just variation within a kind, right, as you can see. So this chart is really, really interesting for a couple of different reasons, but we'll focus on the main one. Since AIG likes skulls so much, let's consider where they're drawing the line. Because the classic question that we evolutionists have for the creationists is, well, where do you draw the line? What's, what is ape kind and what is human kind? And AIG has so graciously just shown us, you know, right here in the open where, where they draw it. And that would be at the Australopithecines. So their line would be between Australopithecus africanus, so the, the oldest Australopithecine, and Homo habilis. But the interesting thing about that is that Homo habilis, the first member of genus Homo, our genus, First of all, you you get a handful of anthropologists who think it should be called Australopithecus habilis because although it did use tools, its brain case is very, very small. In fact, completely outside of the range of anything we would consider human today. But more specifically, you'll notice that they've got Paranthropus down there right above Australopithecus as ah, one of the extinct hominids. It's no longer around. Now, Paranthropus boisei in particular had a brain case size of around 400 to 550 cubic centimeters. And Homo habilis has a brain case range of 500 to 700 cubic centimeters. So they overlap, which completely begs the question, why are they drawing the line here? Because Homo habilis has incredibly basal facial features. We still have prognathism. We still have slightly pronounced canines. We still have enormous brow ridge. There's no chin. And when you get to the postcrania, while it's a little bit better, the shoulders are still somewhat 
ape-like. Homo habilis would have had a better, if you were trying to swing your arm all the way around in like a brachiative fashion, they can do it better than we can. So the point being, drawing the line there is completely arbitrary. There is no reason other than they looked at Homo, genus Homo, and they said, eh, let's just draw the line there. There is so little difference between Australopithecus africanus and Homo habilis that, like I said, anthropologists aren't even 100% sure that it should be in genus Homo, and yet that's where they draw the line. Lest we even get into the genetics of the matter, the classic humans and chimps are 95 to 99% similar on a full genome comparison, and they say, no way, those two are separate kinds, separate kinds. And yet they put house cats in with tigers when their similarity is around 95.6. It's absolutely wild to me that they can, with a straight face, put this chart up here like it has even an iota of empirical value. Right, there they are. They disappeared there. Now we come around and you've got the right light on it and it shows up as a holographic image. And then you see the bones actually as if they're inside the animal. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really have, you, have you seen ex exhibits like this anywhere else? Well, this was the first time that that had ever been done, according to the technician who did it, at least the first time he was aware of it, and he's an expert. But since then, many museums have copied this idea. Well, I think the thing you and I need to do next is look up what non-creation museums are now using this holographic technology. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, when he said, yeah, I think other museums are using it, I was like, tell me where these museums are right now, because that sounds awesome. <laughs> That's right. Well, as soon as this uh, whole quarantine's over, we can all start hitting museums again. Oh, I know. I can't wait. Thank you so much for taking a break from your usual monkey business to help us understand where Ken Ham is wrong about primates. Hey, thanks for having me. And if you're not already subscribed to the Gutsick Gibbon channel, please find the link in the description and fix that immediately. As you can tell, Erica is incredibly knowledgeable about all manner of life science. She's a gifted communicator and a champion for calling out bad ideas along with my regular incredible gratitude to the patrons whose generosity makes this channel possible, I want to give a special shout out to Jamie Hamill and her three dogs. She's a frontline nurse, whom we all appreciate so much in these times. And a filing error on my part long delayed her cartoon rendition, which I finally corrected today. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you so much for watching. Tap on the video of the screen to keep the Hammonig News watch party rolling. And until next time, later.